0: But with that, let's pray, and we'll look at our story today. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you uh, for this time of year, Lord, as, uh, as much as um, I don't like losing an hour of sleep, I do love the, the longer days and, and enjoying your creation. And we thank you for this time that we can gather, that we can study your word, that we can worship you through singing, through studying, through fellowship, through our giving. Lord, we ask that you would uh, use this time now um, to to, to minister to us. Lord, we ask uh, that as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, that you would help us by your Spirit to understand what happened in context, that you would help us to understand the significance of uh, this great trial that is unfolding before our eyes. Uh, Lord, help us to realize how important it is for us whether we've trusted in christ or whether we're still investigating him lord i pray that you would help us um, to truly come to understand who he is that we would um, surrender our lives to him we thank you that he paid it all on the cross for us help us to understand this great doctrine of grace it's something that is It is so difficult for us to understand and to apply to think that you um, would pardon us in such a way. It's unconceivable. And yet we stand here saved by grace. And we are forever indebted to you. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew 26, verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? behold you now you have now heard the blasphemy what do you think they answer he deserves death then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said prophesy to us you christ who is the one who hit you and father we thank you for your word as we look at this trial we again ask that you would help us, Lord, help the story to come alive to us, that we may see it for what happened, and may we understand the implications of this trial for us again. We thank you and we praise you, and we ask this in christ 's good name um, <clears throat> so i 'd done some googling this this week, and I thought i 'd initially start out by sharing you some of the results, but instead, in light of today, and the sleepiness and the grogginess of our eyes. Um, I decided to make this a little more interactive, so feel free to shout out. Um, when you reflect over the last, say, 100 years, 20 years, 10 years, what are some of the great courtroom trials that come to your mind? That's the top one. Everybody thinks O.J. Simpson. Now let's go to the next one. What's the, what are some of the other ones? O.J. is definitely in the top 10 of, of courtroom trials Char- Charles Matt said Menendez brothers, a local San Diego case. That's another big one. Any others? Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. That's going back quite a few years. Okay. The Scopes trial. The Scopes trial. Well, we don't. I'll talk to you later about that. What was that one? Marbury v. There's a lot of court trials I'm not aware of. Um, I I came up with Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Casey Anthony. Uh, and nobody said Martha Stewart. That was one that got a lot of attention. Um, and today, even uh, the great one for San Diego fans—today's sports section, Ryan Leaf's court trial came up. You know, this is a—you uh, know—that's uh, that was uh, it got real quiet with Ryan Leaf's name in San Diego. San Diego Chargers are not on the the top ten list here. Um, these are great trials. These are the, the, the going into the courtroom scene as as uh, television has sort of entered our system, uh, they gain great followings, great appeals. I'll never forget where I was when the O.J. Simpson verdict was, was read out. and, and um, But in light of human trials, really the greatest of all trials in human history, second to none, is the trial of Jesus that, that we are now entering in. Uh, The big picture of this trial is there's going to be three Jewish trials. Um, All of the Jewish trials render Jesus guilty. Uh, We'll get into what he was found guilty of. Then there's going to be three uh, Roman trials. And during those three trials, he effectively is found innocent. But because of the public outcry, they went ahead and uh, yielded to the Jewish court trial, and he would ultimately be executed. There was an attorney, uh, uh, his name was Walter Chandler, that lived in New York in the 50s. He was a very decorated attorney. He basically oversaw the New York um, board exam, and I'm not an attorney, um, but but he oversaw a bunch of the legal world in the 50s. And He wrote a book in 1956 that was titled the Trial of Jesus from a Lawyer's Standpoint. And in his book, he writes this concerning the famous trials of his day, which obviously were not the ones that we listed. Um, but of his day, all of the well-known trials, because I think there's a, uh, whenever there's a courtroom trial going on, uh, people are drawn to it, and they give it a lot of attention. And maybe because of the criminal, there is an emotional desire to see justice sort of fulfilled But he writes concerning his trials, uh, these other trials, one and all, were tame and commonplace compared with the trial and crucifixion of the Galilean peasant, Jesus of Nazareth. These were earthly trials on earthly issues before earthly courts. The trial of the Nazarene was before the high tribunals of both heaven and earth, before the great Sanhedrin, whose judges were the master spirits of a divinely commissioned race before the courts of the Roman Empire that controlled the legal and political rights of men throughout the known world. This trial is huge. And as I've been studying this sort of courtroom scene, if we can call it that, its development, it's important to understand the history of it, to understand the setting, but the reality is, is that Jesus is still on trial amongst us today. That, that you go around the world, you ask people, who is Jesus? In all of our hearts, we have put Jesus on the trial stand examining, who is he? Is he who he claims to be? Is his work on the cross sufficient? Can this possibly be true? Um, so as we go through this story, I want us to examine our hearts, to examine what have we done with Jesus Maybe you're still investigating him as savior of your life. And I hope that you can research and see the evidence supporting his claims that he is worthy of your trust and he is capable and sufficient to make uh, restitution for your sins, that he has pardoned you before God the Father. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, in many ways, he's still on trial Maybe we have oh, I've come to salvation in Christ. But when it comes to my day-to-day living, I really haven't deemed him worthy to handle my problems or my successes. And he's only partway God, which really makes him not God at all in your life. Now, as we look at the the account of this trial, it's important to point out that of the four gospels, no one gospel gives a thorough account of, of all of the trials. They, between each of them, we learned that there were three Jewish trials. We learned that there were three Roman trials. We see basically four components of, of this whole scene that's developing. There's the arrest in the garden. Um, there's the trial before, and well, I'm getting too narrow. Um, there's the arrest scene. There's the Jewish courtroom scene. There's the Roman courtroom scene. And then there's the execution, or sort of the four parts. And so today in verse 57, when we begin to read, those who had seized Jesus and led him away. We we need a pause here. Matthew actually picks up during the second courtroom scene of the Jewish uh, courts. If we were to go to John 18, I'm not going to read from John 18, but you could go to John 18, verses 12 to 24, and there we see sort of the, the first courtroom scene, uh, it's before Annas, the high priest. Now, in today's setting, we're going to read that Caiaphas was the high priest also. We have to understand, uh, typically, there's only, there's only supposed to be one high priest. Annas is actually the Jewish high priest. He is the one that, uh, sort of from the Mosaic law, from how the Jews did business— he was the high priest Caiaphas was also a high priest but the roman courts the roman law had sort of they dictated who the high priest was and there was sort of a rotation and so the the man of our story Caiaphas was the was the high priest that was appointed by rome he he, he was a, a turncoat of sorts he he was uh, rome was in his back pocket he he was sort of the liaison between Rome and their really shady guy, which we'll see, but he was shrewd. He, he, he was really good at what he did to sort of maintain peace for the Jews in Rome and, and sort of walking this fine line, a brilliant man in, in many ways. But the first courtroom scene over in John 18, we're told that they, after Jesus was taken into custody, he was rushed over to Annas' Annas's house. Um, the main purpose of this courtroom to call it a courtroom is is it gets our minds. It's at his house before the high priest, the the, the ultimate judge. Um, he was the father in law of Caiaphas, so he had a bunch of influence. He was brought over there, and I think that the main purpose of of this first trial was a set, essentially sort of a delaying tactic that that while he was over there, they were scrambling on the other side to pull together all of the leaders, to get all of the people together, to try to get an actual trial, go- actual in quotes. It wasn't truly a just trial, and we'll look at that in a bit. They're trying to get all the pieces in place, and Jesus stands before Annas at the first trial, and Annas basically starts asking him, hey, what, what do you teach? Why is everybody so opposed to you? What, what's happening here? And Jesus responds to him, and he says, listen, I taught publicly, openly in front of everybody. Why don't you grab some of the people that I spoke to and ask them what I taught? And at that point, some of his uh, guards got upset. They they punched him. They beat him up. Uh, I imagine it was a bit ruthless. And then they were told that then they transferred him over to Caiaphas. And so as he shows up at Caiaphas, I... I sort of, in my mind, maybe it's because of watching movies or whatever, but I I see Jesus maybe with like a black eye, bloody lip, like he's taken some abuse at this point. The beatings have already begun by the time we come to verse 57. So those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. Now we're at the second trial, the high priest Where the scribes and the elders were gathered together, they were scrambled together while Jesus is away with the high priest and and Annas. And so now this assembly for a court trial has begun. In many ways, this this trial, not in many ways, in every which way, this trial was totally illegitimate. Um, By their own law, by their own standards, They violated, this trial should be totally thrown out. Um, Some of the rules, their rules that they were breaking, that made this trial illegitimate are one of them. And I'm not, this is not an exhaustive list, but all criminal trials must begin and end in daylight. When did this trial begin? This trial began, remember, they'd had the Lord's Supper. They, They went down, it was night to Gethsemane. They were praying at Gethsemane. And during that time, he was seized. They were hauled away, trial number one in in darkness, now trial number two. Uh, We have no idea of the time, but in my mind, this is like two or three in the morning. The the middle of the night, it did not begin or end during daylight hours. Uh, No criminal trials could happen during the Passover season, not just the day, the whole season. And so here we are on the actual Passover day, and this criminal trial is beginning if it was a legitimate trial on day 1 of the trial the only outcome that could be reached according to jewish law on the first day if a decision is to be made the only decision that can come that they can come to on the first day is an acquittal so if they want to acquit the guy now i have oj's line thanks everybody if the glove don't fit, but there's no glove in this story, and um, <laughs> there's that's uh, probably uh, sorry guys, I am tired. And but if an acquittal, if they all came together and say there's no case here, let's throw this out. They could do that on the first day. Anything else, they had to wait a 24 hour period, especially in in the in the in the case of guiltiness. And the purpose for this is they wanted to allow a 24 hour sort of cooling off period to allow sort of um, a heart of mercy to sort of bubble up to the surface. Like maybe they came down really harsh on the guy. And so they had to wait 24 hours and say, you know what, we acted emotionally. We need a, maybe he needs punishment. Let's back it down a little bit. In this case, they went in knowing the outcome and everything happens in the cloak of darkness. Um, All evidence that was submitted had to be submitted by two witnesses that during the whole process, they were kept totally separately. They couldn't speak to one another. They couldn't collaborate. This is common sense. This is how, how investigations happen today. If, if two people are sort of pulled into custody, they keep them separate, and then they examine the various stories. In this case, we'll see that they were almost recruiting people, like, come on, guys, we're looking for evidence to, 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 to show that Jesus was guilty. They were intentionally, we'll see, that they were looking for false testimonies, which in a Jewish court trial, if you were found giving false testimony, these guys were encouraged to give false testimony. But if you were found to give false testimony, that brought the penalty of death. So they took lying under oath really seriously. And a trial, when taken place, the last one we'll look at today, if a trial was to happen under the Jewish law, there was a sort of an order of events of how the trial sort of unfolded. The first order of business is all the evidence supporting the, the person who is defending himself, all the evidence supporting his innocence had to be shown first. His defense team was able to go to make their case to do everything. They got the first shot to do everything. In this case, there was no defense. Jesus is immediately on trial facing capital charges, but they don't even know. Actually, he's facing capital punishment for a charge that is yet to be decided, And in the midst of this trial, while they're violating so much of their plain laws and rules, there's this undercurrent of absolute obedience to sort of minutiae in their laws. So there were certain things that they were absolutely clinging to while ignoring the overall blatant stuff. This is just to introduce us to this whole, to Caiaphas, verse 57, the, the high priest where the scribes and ad- elders were gathered together. They'd, they'd gathered together in the cloak of gar- darkness to have this legal trial, which was totally done inaccurately. And, and this was not justly, there, this was not the way that court trials should be handled and I think that the Roman government was totally aware of this. They, that's why they kept trying to dismiss Jesus, to, to get the case thrown out. This this is not a death penalty case. And in verse 58, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. We're, we're sort of introduced to young Peter, or not young Peter, older Peter. Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on Peter and what was he doing in the midst of the trial. But we read here that Peter was following him at a distance. So as this, in both scenes so far... So if you were to go to John 18, you'd see that, that Peter, he was following sort of close behind Jesus so he could see, but but not close enough to where he'd be identified with Jesus. Remember, he's going to deny, and he already has at this point, to deny that he knew Jesus or that he was associated with him or that he was with him. But he wanted to stay close enough that he could see the outcome, to, to see what would unfold in this case. But Peter was following him in a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Uh, before we start picking on Peter in this, a, a really beautiful story of forgiveness and, and Peter's failing, yet, yet God's commissioning him to serve the church. It's beautiful. And, and even though we know that Peter denies Jesus in this story, there's a beauty of his love, for Jesus. There's a beauty in he, even though he's denying him, he's, he's putting his life at risk by staying close to this guy. Remember, what did Peter do just earlier? He cut the ear off of some guy that was restored. So it's sort of in like one of these things, when he, one of his denials like, hey, you're the guy who cut off the guy's slave's ear. You know him. No, 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 that wasn't me. You got the a different swordsman. Not, not me at all. But we'll look at Peter next week. And so here we are at the trial. Verse 59, now we read, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Let that one just sort of sit, sit settle in your brains a little bit. What were they doing? They were not looking for evidence to seek the truth. A, a judge, in theory, is unbiased. They just want to hear the facts they're not leaning one way or the other they 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 basically play, play the hall room monitor to make sure that everything is presented is done legally truthfully accurately and to allow the truth to sort of bubble up and that will determine which way the the court case goes but so right here we read that the chief priests and the whole council they're trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. So they're looking for people who are willing to lie. We don't care who you guys are. Come forward. We're trying to make a case to get this guy executed. So come forward. Come give us your best story, whatever you got. And we'll sort of sift through there to see if we can find somebody that has a good enough story that we can present to the Roman government so that they can execute Jesus because the Jews did not have the authority to execute anybody. False testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. So we have to see and to feel these religious leaders that from the high priest down to his guys, guy after guy after guy, like many are coming forward. Many are giving their stories And they're like, that won't work, that won't work, that won't work, that won't work. What are we going to do? This is huge. The the deck is totally stacked against Jesus. They're cheating. They're simply trying to find somebody that can lie, that can make a case against Jesus, that will have him put to death, and they can't find anything against him. Remember, this is, Jesus, the Messiah, God. The one who is tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. He was blameless. That the the deeper that they dug into his life, the the more blank spots they could come up with. I, I really enjoy reading about biographies. You know, you read all these great stories about men and women of, of of the faith who have done great things for God, and if you get uh, a good biographer that's able to dig into the history, every single person from, like, uh, name, like, whoever, from Spurgeon to, to Moody, to all these, these guys all had shortfalls. They all, they all had things that, that they fell short of the glory of God in their life, and they have these imperfections because they're human, because they're sinners that were saved by grace. But as you dive into the life of Christ as you begin to peel away the layers looking for something, any blemish. There's nothing. And the frustration that that this quote-unquote court was feeling as they're trying to plead their case, they're, 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 they're feeling like it's over. It's almost like playing a game. Like I can't even, it's too early for me to think of a good game, but but I hate losing so much. And I, I, I hate that place in playing a game when you can do all the math and you know you're toast. At that moment, what I want to do is flip the board over. But you're forced to be a good example and to sort of go through the motions of like the slow, painful death. And I think this is where they are. They're like, we don't have anything. But then two came forward And they said, this man said this. I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So I see this high priest kind of scratching his head going, there's two of them. They have the same story. They're both saying that this man said he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. There's nothing there, but there's two of them. And, and maybe, maybe we can incriminate him somehow. You know, the Miranda rights say that, uh, you know, essentially, you know, you have the, remi- or you, <laughs> it's early in the morning, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Now, I'm not an attorney, but I want you to think about that. Anything you say can be, And will be used against you. There's nowhere in the Miranda rights that say, hey, if you're able to plead your case and you can show your innocence, that that can be used for you. It's what you say can condemn you. And we need to tell you of your rights. You have the right not to speak against yourself, you have the right not to testify against yourself. Now, I'm not saying if you get pulled over by a law enforcement officer and says, show me your driver's license, I'm not speaking to you. I have the right to be inside. Show me your license, you're just going to get in trouble. Like, don't, don't go starting trouble. People like starting trouble. That's not what I'm saying here. But the, the, but in the Mosaic in, in the mosaic law, where a lot of our principles come from, this is like the same for Jesus. He had every right not to incriminate himself. A, a person that was on trial, they did not have to bear testimony against themselves and so the priest the high priest Caiaphas he knows he's desperate he knows he doesn't have a case against this guy he knows that so he said he'd destroy the temple in three days he'd rebuild it in three days this is this is talk of a crazy man the temple i should have looked it up but i i mean it took decades to build the temple if you go to the remains of the temple today, it's huge. Like, I don't, none of us could destroy the temple, let alone rebuild it in three days. And so he, he's thinking to himself, this is what I have. I have two guys that are testifying that this man said he was going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. And I'm going to walk him to the Roman court and say, can you please kill this guy? Because he said he was going to destroy the temple and then he was going to rebuild it in three days. Can we put him to death for that? No, like, you obviously have a crazy guy in your hands. You want us to kill him for that? So he, he, he knows that if he's going to have a case, he's going to have to violate some of the rules that he is supposed to be playing by. And so he decides to ask Jesus some questions, hoping that Jesus will sort of fall into a trap. Maybe Jesus will say something to incriminate himself. And he says, do you not answer? what is it that these men are testifying against you and i i sort of not that i'm jesus not that i've met him face to face not that i was there and maybe it's because i watched a movie so i feel like i can see it but i see jesus sort of with a, a a beaten bloody face look at him with a little twinkle in his eye and a little smirk and he just doesn't answer anything. You you want me to address charges of saying about what I said about destroying the temple and rebuilding in three days? I think there is a beauty here. I think that um, Jesus is in full control. Remember last week, he says that a, at any given moment he could call down twelve legions of angels. And twelve legions of angels—I forget the actual math and the numbers—but but basically, it has the—they had the killing capacity to wipe out. Um, more than the whole earth's capacity or population uh, based on an incident that happened in 2 Kings from one of them. So at any time, Jesus Jesus could have gotten out of this situation, and yet he stands silently. And I'm always convicted to be a man of a lot of words. I find myself like talking and then talking and then talking, and it's like, there's a time to not stop. But I don't know that it's the application here. I, I think that there is an application that in the midst of his suffering, he is totally at rest, understanding how this is going to play out. He is willingly drinking of this cup. He is subjecting himself to the will of the Father. And I do think that there's some lesson that we can learn from Christ, based on Philippians chapter 2, that that as followers of Christ, that when we face trials, to be able to rest, to be able to trust that God is using that trial to to work something in our lives. But Jesus sits in silence. And I think that this, this has to have Caiaphas' blood just boiling because he knows he doesn't have a case against Jesus. And so he's going to press the issue. He's going to press to the jugular vein of Christianity He's going to press to the point that if Jesus even affirms at the little bit that he will have charges for capital punishment and he can do away with all witnesses. And so the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Now, Boyce, a commentator, he writes this, it's it's a little bit long, but but he does a good job showing the, uh, the the legal sort of eye that he's able to, to, to thread the thread through. He writes this concerning his question. At this point, Caiaphas reveals the shrewdness for which the Romans had undoubtedly made him chief Jewish ruler. What he did was illegal. The high priest was forbidden to intervene in a capital trial. And he could cast his vote only after the other court members had cast their vote. Nevertheless, what he did was a stroke of political genius. Seeing that the case was dissolving, Caiaphas suddenly turned to the prisoner and demanded on the basis of the most solemn oath in Israel, the oath of the testimony, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us, If you are the Christ, the Son of God. This was brilliant for two reasons. First, the wording of the challenge was precise. If Caiaphas had only asked if Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus could have answered yes without jeopardy, for it was not a capital offense to make such a claim. Time would prove either right or wrong. Again, if Caiaphas had asked only if Jesus was the Son of God, Jesus could have answered yes without danger, for he had diffused a similar accusation earlier when he reminded his accusers that many Jews were called sons of God. However, by combining the two parts as he did, Caiaphas was not asking, was asking not merely if Jesus was the Messiah or Son of God in some general sense, but whether he was the Messiah who was God. If Jesus said yes to that, he could be convicted of the capital crime of blasphemy. So this question is huge. Caiaphas is st- all these te- all these guys coming forward with their cr- like what? I wonder what false testimony they came up with. If we're getting about the temple in three days, like what other crazy stuff was was brought before him? He's he's frustrated. It's the middle of the night, and he's like. I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to press Jesus on the very point that he needs pressed on. How would Jesus respond? This is this is huge. Jesus said to him, "You have said it yourself." He finally speaks. He responds to Caiaphas, the one who's bringing these accusations. He acknowledged that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, the living God in flesh on earth. If this isn't clear, Jesus is going to basically ratchet up his response. He doesn't just stop with it. It is as you say, you're correct. And what, and what you said about me, you're absolutely correct. He doesn't stop there. He's going to quote, he's going to sort of merge Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel 7.13, these two messianic prophecies and he's going to explain to him that basically, not only is he the Messiah, the Son of God, but he acknowledges that while he's standing under the authority of Caiaphas and facing judgment to him, that one day Caiaphas will stand before him in the heavenly courts and Jesus is going to condemn him. It's, it's, it's powerful. Um, don't ever let anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. He absolutely claimed to be God. It's, in fact, it's the only reason that he was put to death. He was put to death for the very reason that he said, I am God. He says, nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power. This Psalm 110 is a powerful psalm. It's beautiful. I'd encourage you to read it. It comes up over and over and over again in the New Testament and acts Peter. I think of Peter hearing this and then when he he stands before the same people, he uses this over and over again. He said, "How could David refer to his Lord as Lord his son as Lord who is over him?" And he he, he paints the case that he could say this about his descendant that would be Jesus because he is God and ultimately this great, great, great grandson of David's was really his creator. But if you follow Psalm 110 through the New Testament, it's overwhelming that this, this section is used over and over and over again affirming that Jesus is the Messiah And if it's not clear to you because we're removed by culture, by 2,000 years, we don't find ourselves as, as Jews living der- during that era. And it's like, Gunnar, the case you're making, I, it just says you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand. I'm like, I don't see what you're saying. Well, look at how the priest reacts. Because he understood clearly and absolutely without a doubt what Jesus said to him. Then the high priest tore his robes, and he said, he is blasphemed. Now, the question is, did Jesus blaspheme? The answer is no. If I was in Jesus' place, or you were in Jesus' place, and we answered with the same words that Jesus answered with, the answer would be, yes, that's blasphemy. However, Jesus actually being the Messiah, actually being the Son of God, did not blaspheme He was just speaking the truth. But Caiaphas is understanding this from a place of disbelief. He does not believe. The evidence did not weigh up in his mind that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. So he rips his robes, a sign of mourning, a sign of distress. And he basically says, what need do we have for any more witnesses? Tell all those people to go home. We don't need any of these witnesses. Because in front of everybody, the high council, they heard his blasphemy. They heard amongst all of these witnesses that Jesus before them said, I am the great I am. There's no need for anymore. We are now the witnesses. We all heard him say this this very night. And he looks to the council, Caiaphas, and he says, what do you guys think? And they answer, he deserves death. This, this, this whole trial, there was nothing. And in the very last moment, Jesus gives them exactly what they need to basically give him the death penalty. Because remember, Jesus isn't, he's not going to the cross on accident. It's not happenstance. It's all a part of God's divine plan to provide the ultimate Passover lamb for us. It's beautiful. They say he needs death. This is that. This is a capital penalty. This is the. This is capital punishment. And the case will continue in the morning. We'll go to the third trial in verse, chapter twenty-seven, verses one and two, where they gather and they formally, for the third time, basically confirm that Jesus des- des- deserves the death penalty. And then, verse sixty-seven, we read: Then they spit in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him it's easy to read this and not uh, to to grasp the 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 vileness of this this is disturbing violence I, I i've never spit in anybody's face i don't know if you guys have spit in anybody's face i've had a little bit of spit kind of like come out of my mouth and land on somebody's like ooh do they notice what just happened And I'm sure they're doing the same exact thing that happens when it's me. Like, I get a little bit of spit, and it could, like, land in your eye, and you're like, oh, that's so, oh, no. Blinking really fast, but I'm like, I don't want to make them feel bad, or if it goes in your mouth. And it's like, I mean, we're talking just a little bit. It can, like, like the hippy-jibbies, you know? It's, like, terrible. There was one time in my life when I saw somebody truly spit in a man's face. And I get queasy just thinking about it. I was in the teams. We'd been. On, it was some some training thing where we had to dive in San Diego Bay, and it was a long three-hour dive. And it's in my mind, it's like two or three in the morning. We had all of this brass, these high-ranking guys there to sort of um, uh, because we were in, in some ways sort of being inspected by them. And so when you're d- diving on a a, 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 a drager a, a rebreather. You, know, you can't spit. Like, if you're in regular diving, you can spit, and it just kind of goes out. You can clear your whatever. In a rebreather, you can't, because to get fluid into the sodasorb, we'll give a dive class later, guys, on this stuff. But but it becomes very toxic if, if this sodasorb of stuff looks like cat litter. If fluid gets in there, it goes toxic, and it can kill you. It's a wonderful system that the Germans came up with. And so... You do everything you can do not to let your fluids get into the system. And so at the end of the day, your whole head is like clogged up and your body has an amazing way to produce stuff in your nose. And so we were at the table. I'm sitting there at a table. There's a wall in front of us. I'm kind of breaking down my rig. And I hear my buddy to the left of me sort of do the. It's like, oh, that just sounds terrible. And he turns around and he spits. And wouldn't you know it, <laughs> walking right here, I can still see his face. I can't remember his name, but he was the highest guy on scene. This warrant officer hit him right in the eye. And we all saw it and we're like, dude, you are not like, I didn't want to look at the guy they got spit on. I wanted to act like I didn't see it, like it didn't happen, like I'm just going to keep going go clean. It. And I'm kind of like, we're half like giggling, half like, dude, you're in so much. Tr- you just spit in, his, in the warrant's face. And not just any spit, but you like. And the guy was a super gracious guy, and he like wipes it off, and he's like, dude, you got me. And he's like, I'm really, really, really sorry. He's like, it was a total, I mean, it was just happenstance. I was, well, you didn't do it. And, but so vile. I only—I mean, I—I I only bring this up because they spit in Jesus' face. Like this isn't like they're talking in a little bit. This is—he's bloodied up already. The whole emotion of what he just claimed that he was God, this blasphemy of the highest caliber. These guys are spitting in him. The—the—the the, the utter. The greatest sign of disrespect, the, one of the most vile thing I don't want to say it's the most vile thing that can happen to an individual, but it's pretty gross. And then we see that they're basically punching him with their fist Th- These are, uh, this isn't like where they're worried about lawsuits in our day and age. This is like they are unleashing on him, destroying his face with fists, with open slaps mocking him. For you and for me, Jesus is taking this. This is all part of his punishment. And then they continue to mock on him. Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you? Now, this statement lets you know a few things. It lets you know that as Jesus is receiving the blows, he doesn't know, and it's impossible for him to see who's delivering them. So many of them are coming. His face is probably messed up. His eyes could be swollen at this point. Like all of this is conjecture. I don't know. But it makes it clear that what's happening to him, they know he cannot see what is happening to him. And they say, prophesy to us. Tell us who's doing this. And the irony of this is as they're requesting a prophecy to be made, they're fulfilling a prophecy that this very thing would happen to Christ. Isaiah 53, it's, I mean, it's powerful. And as we take communion today, I didn't really line up guys. Hopefully guys are available to do it up here when it's time. It'll all work out. When we take communion, there's a broken cracker that reminds us of Jesus' body on the cross. And so easy it is for us just to think of the cross. But the betrayal really began back much further, that as he felt the weight of what was about to be unleashed on him in the, the garden, we're told that he was sweating and under so much strain that his, that the capillaries were, were, were bursting forth with sweat and blood. Uh, as this weight was being pressed upon him, as one of the 12 Judas came and betrayed him with a kiss, he was taken into custody, likely took a beating there. We know he was beaten at the first quote-unquote trial. He was then, this, it was really opened up on him, and the best is yet to come. But his body is taking blow after blow after blow, that by the end he'd be unrecognizable, And so we take this little cracker today, and it's to remind us of what he went through. And not just that he went through it, but he did it for us, for you, for me. And while it's important to remember this trial, more important than this trial, I don't want to say more important, but just as important as far as it relates to you, is... While we remember this trial, the most important trial for you today is the trial that's happening in your in your heart and your mind for who Jesus is. The Bible compels us to seek out the, the evidence, which there is all sorts of evidence for Christ. Our default position is that we are against him, that we... Maybe it's not guilty or innocent, but it's do you believe or do you not believe? Our default is that we don't believe and that we've rejected him. While the Bible testifies over and over again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he the Father made he, him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that's Uh, it's a piece to this puzzle as we take communion. What have you done with Jesus? Have you dismissed his trial, the evidence that he's placed before us to demonstrate to you that he is the creator of the universe, that he, he stepped out of heaven to become a man, to make the ultimate sacrifice so that you might have a relationship with God? What have you done with that? There are only two choices. You rejected him or you've believed. We see the great heart of God throughout the New Testament really the whole Bible that he desires all of us to turn to him to believe and maybe there's a bunch of us in here like hey I got the fire insurance card I believed I've trusted in Jesus he's my he's my savior but then the question then comes up is how do you how does it work out in your life When you're going through great trials, do you stand under them and trust that Jesus, as the scriptures testify, that he's Lord, that he's all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing? And so whatever earthly trial you're going through, the Bible tells us that God is sovereign and he is overall, and however bad it is, that he's under control. And in the courtroom of your heart, there's something to to say, Lord, I don't know why you're doing this or why you're allowing this to happen to me. I think a lot of times it's why why are you allowing this to happen to me? I think that God gets blamed for man's sin all the time when it's, it's not his doing. But he is sovereign and he allows it. And there's something to faith of saying, no, Lord, I believe the testimony about you. I believe that no matter how bad this is, I'm not speaking from the most of you know the story of my childhood. To to look back and why did this happen to me? I believe that God used that to shape me into the man that I am. I wouldn't undo it. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I wouldn't undo it. I wouldn't change it. It's, It's what I needed in my life to bring me to where I am today. And I think there's something about when you stand in the midst of trials, that you're saying, Lord, you're Lord. And I don't know why this is happening to me, but but I'm going to yield to you and I'm going to drink from this cup and I'm asking you to move and to to bring resolution, to bring whatever to whatever trial it is. Now on the other side of the coin, I I think just as convicting in the courtroom of our heart is how about when everything's going great for you? When the the bank account's full, you have food in the fridge, everything's looking good, you're you're not sick, everything's going great. Where does Jesus fit into all of that? How do you handle your resources? How do you handle your spare time? You know, the saying, I probably should have looked it up, and I'm probably, it's, it's, it's one of those things that it's not looking right to me how I wrote it out, but the saying that is he he is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And as we head towards communion, this verse that I brought up last week, it's moving slowly through the the crucifixion story is, is Paul's writing that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That the scriptures make it clear to us the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that is with, within us. And Paul says, I want to know this power. He also says that he, he wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings that as Christ suffered hebrews four fifteen tells us that we don't have a high priest that can 't sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but he 's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin and that as we go through suffering not not for, the suffering here is that if you stand for Christ, if you walk with him, if you live for him in our world, there will be resistance there will be maybe it 's as simple as just somebody just teasing you. Or maybe more severe, like around the world, like we're really a, a bad taste, a test model. But if you go around the world to the, the whole of, of Christianity, which are our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have many who are locked up in prison, many who are being tortured, many who have been kicked out of their communities. And they're participating with the fellowship of his sufferings. And then finally, Paul says, "Being conformed to his death." So, as we take communion, we are identifying with him and his death—that he died in our place—and by faith, we're linking ourselves to him. So, I'm going to ask the guys, whoever four of you are that want to come forward. There's one. There's two. There's three. There's four. <laughs> oh, five. Oh, well, there we go. Dave sitting down. We're good. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm going to pray, and then they're going to pass out the elements. Uh, Please hold on to the elements. Okay, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for the testimony provided to us uh, from Genesis to Revelation, through the Gospels, through history down to the day that so we're reminded that we changed our clocks today, that we're reminded of the calendar. So many things around us point to the the history of what happened, that point us to the trial, that point us to the day Christ was condemned by a human court, Lord, help us not to lose sight that this wasn't by happenstance, that this was all a part of your great plan driven by a great love for your creation. And so Father, today as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would help us, Lord, that maybe for those that haven't come to faith in Christ, that you um, would give them the evidence that they need that renders Christ their savior. We're all in different places. We're all in different walks with you. And Lord, I pray that as we take communion, as we are reminded of your broken body and the new covenant, Lord, that you would help us to place you in the seat of prominence in our lives whether there's rejoicing, whether there's sorrow, whether there's financial blessing or financial hardship. Lord, we pray that we would honor you, that we would bring you glory in our lives. As the great centurion approached you and acknowledged his lack of faith and his struggle and following you, he asked you simply to increase his faith where he struggles. And so, Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would help us in our relationship with you. We thank you that you paid it all for us, that we might have life eternal. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.